Let me ask you a question this morning. What did you expect for today? And you woke up this morning and either early or late or right on time and started to get ready and if you're in a house full of kids, you're getting the kids ready, you're running around, you're getting breakfast, you're getting clothes on, you're making sure they all look good because it's church. It's just you and your spouse, you maybe spend some time, a normal kind of morning, getting ready, ready to go. and Got in the car and traveled to First Baptist Church, Goodlettsville. What did you expect? Well, Pastor, really, honestly, I didn't expect... I don't know what I expected because that's just kind of what I do. Maybe you're new here. Maybe this isn't uh, something you've been doing for the last 20, 30, 40 years. This is brand new. Maybe it's your first day. Maybe it's your fifth time. Maybe it's your tenth time. And you, you've, you've already developed some expectations. What did you expect? Well, I expected some songs and for you to get up and talk to us and a couple more songs and then, then we're going to go home. You know, we all come to life and to moments like this with certain expectations. And in a lot of life, you can trace our disappointment and our despair and our difficulties to moments in our lives when our expectations didn't get met. Maybe we had an expectation of what our job and our career was going to be like, and somewhere along the way, it got derailed. And in our unmet expectations, we became disappointed in our profession. Maybe we all had a certain way that, that our family was going to be. We were going to get married and buy the house with the white picket fence and have the two and a half kids like every American family and be a normal American family and suddenly we can't have children. Or it's difficult. Or life intervenes and our children aren't exactly what we thought they were going to be. Or the relationship with our spouse deteriorates rapidly or gradually and eventually becomes a burden more than the joy we imagined. Expectations in church life can be something that when they're not met, suddenly becomes something that brings discouragement and disappointment. Well, I really thought that the church would do this for me. Or I really thought the pastor ought to. And when that doesn't get met, our expectations lead to disappointment. I want to talk to you today, we've been in a series talking about soul renovation. I want to talk to you today about renovating your expectations. Because here's the reality. Nothing changes our expectations more than encountering the living God. And what I want to talk to you today is about a guy whose life had brought him discouragement and disappointment. His expectations weren't met and they were only redirected once he had come into a place where he had an encounter with the living God. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at this passage of Scripture where Isaiah is confronted by the Lord. I want to read the entire passage to you this morning and then we're going to talk about it and we're going to 
kind of analyze some things out of it. But here's what I want you to realize. Each thing we're going to talk about today, and there's not going to be any notes up on the screen, and not going to be any, uh, if you're using you version, you can look up the scripture, but the notes aren't there. Because I, I want you to think outside the box of your expectations today. And I want us to see where our expectations fall short. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, and I'm reading out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and His robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above Him. Each one had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one called to another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundation of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me! For I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among the people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for us. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who should I send? And Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he replied, Go. Say to these people, Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Dull the minds of these people. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. And I said, Until when, Lord? And he replied, Until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak, which leaves the stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. Here's the things that I want us to see today. The first thing that I want us to see is from this passage is whatever expectations we have, God is greater than than we expected. Now there are certain dates, times, and locations that are burned into the consciousness of our nation. Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. Dallas, Texas, November 22nd, 1963. Memphis, Tennessee, April 4th, 1968. New York City, September 11th, 2001. Dates that are typically coincide with the feeling that the world is coming apart and have great meaning to them. We attach great importance to the events that circle around them, these times of tragedy and loss. Well, in similar ways, the people in Isaiah's day had one of those moments. The place, Judah, the time, the year that King Uzziah died. Now, it may not mean much to us to hear in the year King Uzziah died. But to those people, it meant So much. They were coming out of a period of some of the greatest prosperity they had ever seen. People were rich. Businesses were thriving. Building was going up all over the place. The person they thought was directly responsible for that was this King Uzziah. He's the one that had kept the wheels of commerce greased. But at this moment, he's either dead 
or dying of leprosy and is no longer on the throne. People all around would have been wondering, what's going to happen next? I mean, Uzziah was a guy that had kind of kept things moving, kept things going. Now, the reality is, the people in Israel in that day, the people in Judah in that day, were not living for the Lord. In fact, if you look at the last few years of King Uzziah's life, he walked away from the Lord, he didn't listen to the Lord, he didn't do what the Lord said. And so they had this kind of false sense of security. They lived in a prosperous nation with people that were doing good things, but they weren't living for the Lord. They lived in a nation that had seen unparalleled prosperity for the last couple of hundred years. Uzziah had been on the throne for over 50 years. Everything looked good on the outside, but on the inner core of who they are, spiritually the nation was withering on the vine. Isaiah, in the midst of that, decides that he's going to go to the temple. And you have to understand, when we hear go to the temple, we automatically in our minds think, oh, go to the church or something like a picture of a temple we've seen. But at that time, the temple in Jerusalem was one of the largest buildings in the world. It would have been one of those buildings you would have walked up to in awe. Anybody here been to the Grand Canyon? Alright? Anybody here been to the Empire State Building? I haven't been to either of those places, but I hear they're great. I will tell you where I've been, which tells you something about my life. I haven't been to the Grand Canyon or New York City, but I've been to the Christ statue in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And it is massive. You know what I'm talking about, right? The white statue with his arms stretched out. When you're flying into Rio, you fly some of the routes, fly directly by it. And it is awe-inspiring. Isaiah walking up to the temple would have seen columns that would have been like redwoods. When he went inside, the painting would have had this gold, spectacular painting on it. And it would have stretched out above him like the canopy of space. It would have been an awe-inspiring moment to even walk into the temple. But on this particular day, those expectations aren't good enough. On this particular day, when he walks into the temple, it's not just the building that inspires all, but suddenly he sees these beings. He's given a glimpse into heaven. The curtain is pulled back, and he sees in the midst of that these angels flying above. His knees would have started to quiver. His teeth would have started chattering. The air is filled with these magnificent beings. Their voices are so loud and thunderous that they are literally shaking the foundations of that massive temple. He's worried that everything's going to fall down literally around him. As he walks in and as the things are happening and he looks, he realizes suddenly that these great creatures vastly greater than the structure in which he is currently standing, is they are in abject terror of something else in the room. He suddenly understands why they're covering themselves with their wings. That these angels, the most colossal, cataclysmic creatures Isaiah has ever seen, are completely in awe of the One on the throne. It says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. At the tiniest glimpse of the barest edge, the angelic warriors erupt into holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. If you're kind of plotting reality on a scale from initially walking into the buildings to the, oh my goodness, 
Wow! You get to the point where God is revealed and you realize it is far beyond any words that we can use to describe Him. And what he sees there is a God who is in complete and absolute control. When you hear the word throne, what do you think of? Chair? What is it? Who sits on the throne? King, right? What does a king do? He rules, right? He's in charge of the kingdom. When Isaiah gets into this room, what he sees, what the temple displays for him, is a heavenly throne unlike any has seen. And the point is that this God is in control of all things. Not Uzziah, who had been on the throne for 52 years. All of Israel was needed to be shaken by the vision of the Lord on the throne. Each one of the positions, the, the title Lord, the throne, the position, the all-encompassing robe, reinforce that God is in absolute control. But that's not the main thing He sees. The main thing He sees is that the one that is on the throne is holy. Sovereignty is God's powerful nature. Holiness is His moral character. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, notes that Holiness is the only attribute of God that is presented in Scripture in superlative. It's the only attribute of God that is repeated three times in a row. Now, in the Jewish language or the Jewish people, when they repeated anything twice, it was there for emphasis. So that's why sometimes you'll see uh, in Jewish things, they won't just say, Amen. They'll say, Amen, Amen. Like, Really, amen. Alright? It's, it's times that they'll say things twice to emphasize them. But what you rarely see is this threefold emphasis. Now, on one level, it just means that God is set apart. But on another level, when we talk about the attributes of God, we can't understand what holiness really means. When we say that God is holy, we means He stands apart from us, is different from us, other than us. It has the sense that He is completely whole. Listen to this from one of my favorite writers, a guy named A.W. Tozer. He says this, God is the absolute quintessence of moral excellence, infinitely perfect and righteous purity and rectitude. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure, very good, and then just say, well, God must be better than that. God is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing of His divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, approachable, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The book of Genesis says that man once lived with some kind of concept of what that was like. But that we as human beings chose to walk away from the Lord. And when we chose to walk away from the Lord, when we turned, our forebearers turned their backs on God, original sin became a spiritual cancer. It corrupted our minds, distorted our wills, and disfigured our character. And every human being since that day has had that disease. And part of that disease is we lose sight of the holiness and perfection of God. Listen, I, I could sit here and give you quotes and ideas and understandings. I could give you descriptions all day long. And it wouldn't come close to letting you understand how 
unbelievably great God is. I don't know what you expect of God, but I can almost guarantee this. It's too small, whatever it is. I don't know what you expect God to be able to do, but whatever you think is too small in comparison to God. Our God is much greater than we've ever expected. Here's the second thing we learn from this passage. We are much worse than we expected. We are much worse than we expected. Do you notice God doesn't give an altar call here? He doesn't offer an invitation. You know, at the end of the service here, I offer an invitation. You know, that's supposed to be the time that if you have some business to do with God or you need to pray about something or you need to talk about something, that you come down front. And I realize that, that just because you don't, don't, don't come down front doesn't mean that you're not doing business with God or talking with God. But God doesn't offer an invitation here, does He? The answer is no. You can then offer an invitation. It just is a picture of who God is. But what does Isaiah immediately say? What are the first words out of Isaiah's mouth? Woe is me. Anybody remember Edgar Allan Poe? Some of you high school students remember Edgar Allan Poe? Alright. Edgar Allan Poe is not my favorite writer. Because his writing is pretty demented, right? There was a story. Anybody remember the story of the Telltale Heart? In the story, Poe cast himself as the culprit in this and um, he's living with an old man, and the old man has a vulture-like eye. That Poe decides the only way to get rid of the vulture-like eye is to get rid of the man. So in the dark of night, he enters the old man's room, lets a crack of light out of his lantern, and he sees the vulture-like eye fixed on him. The old man's heart begins to pound faster and faster as Poe toys with his victim. Then when the old man screams, Poe smothers him with a pillow and makes sure he's dead. No, that's exactly... See, that's not what you expected to hear today. To cover his crime, do you remember what Poe does in the story? He pulls up the planks of the floor and buries his victim there. Suddenly, here's a knock. At his door. Who is it? It's the police. Investigators. They've heard screaming. They've been told they're screaming. Poe pulls his chair around, has coffee with them, and puts his chair directly over the boards. This is a modified version of it. And as he's sitting there, he begins to hear boom, boom. Boom, boom. And the heart is calling out to him. What happens with Isaiah in the presence of Almighty God is that the sin that he has buried begins to echo in his mind. And he can no longer keep it inside. He looks and he says, Whoa! It's me. I'm ruined. He basically says, I don't have any reason being here. There's no right for me to be in this place. Get me out of here. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. 
I'm concerned about what's going to happen if I stand in the presence of God any longer. I am unclean. I live among people who are unclean. My eyes have seen the King. It's almost like my, I, I can't even look at it. Shield me from it. Get me away from it. I am deeper in debt of sin than I ever realized. You see, sometimes we can come to this conclusion that we have somehow become better people. That we've learned enough, we've done enough good stuff, we've put enough stuff away, we've learned what not to do, and all the vices of this world we've taken care of, and we live with virtues, and we, we don't, um, you know, like I talked about before, as youth they used to tell you, don't cuss, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do, Right? And we've got all that down, we've got that down, and I do this and I do that. But what we fail to see in the midst of that is that we, in ourselves, are still deeply stained by the presence of sin. And in the presence of God throughout Scripture, there is only one response that comes when they see how just a glimpse of how incredibly glorious God is. The only thing we see from human beings in Scripture when they get a glimpse of the glory of God is they fall on their face in utter embarrassment. Woe is me! Most of you know, I preached last week at my home church and... One of the things I talked about in my home church was uh, I, I used a passage that I preached on last fall here of the woman who washes Jesus' feet with her hair and anoints His feet with oil. And it just struck me again how <laughs> Simon in his mind thinks if Jesus knew who was touching His feet, He would never let her do it. And Jesus, He didn't say it, but Jesus reads His mind and He says to him basically, he gives a parable, but the point of the parable is, first of all, she has lots to be thankful for. But then he also basically says, Simon, you're right. There are two kinds of people in the world. See, you think that you're holy and she's not. There are holy and unholy. The problem is, you've got yourself in the wrong category. The only holy is Christ. It's God, not us. Isn't it easy sometimes to kind of think of ourselves as good people because we're church people? Well, you know, so-and-so, they don't even go to church anymore. I don't know what's happened in their life. But, I, but let me, you know. Whatever else you can say about me, at least I'm still there. At least I still go. In the presence of Almighty God, we are worse than we expected. There was a book written a few years ago about com conversations with people that had been converted. And it's, it's from writings and different things about everyone from the Apostle Paul to his contemporary as Charles Colson. And in the midst of it all is this understanding from Isaiah even that there is this stab of conscience, the shame of inward uncleanness, the remorse of sin, and the sensation of being lost and alone. When John Bunyan, for instance, the guy that wrote Pilgrim's Progress, felt he... he when he came to understand who he was in Christ and how far he was from Christ, he says he felt like he was a child falling into a pit and sprawled in the water at the bottom of the pit. He could find no handhold or foothold to lift himself out. He felt he would die in that condition. Soren Kierkegaard, who was a philosopher, said that he remembered being like a rower in a boat who kept going the wrong way. And that the stream was just beating him, going this way. And he kept trying to paddle against the stream alone and by himself. And in desperation, he called out to God. 
And what happens in this passage is Isaiah comes to that moment of complete brokenness. I have no place in the presence of God, no right to praise God, no authority to speak to Him. Woe is me. Notice, he doesn't just realize his own sinfulness, although it is there. He also realizes that he lives among people who are that way. Here's the truth. None of us in this room are as good as we think we are. None of us. I know that's the exciting thing you wanted to hear today. But it's true. The Bible underlies that the response of a holy God is to sin is not an indulgent wink or I know or it'll be alright, but is wrath. Jesus says, I tell you that you will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word you have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted and by your words you'll be condemned. Jesus said, for the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels and He will repay each person according to what He's done. Luke 21 says how dreadful it will be in those days. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against the people. I know when we hear about the wrath of God, many of us immediately want to change the channel or run away or click our minds somewhere else. Or some of us think of the completely indiscriminate or uncaring lashing out that happens. But the truth is, God's wrath is needed and right. One writer says this, that in the same way that God's love is not a silly, sappy feeling, but rather a consistent desire for the good of His people, so also the wrath of God is not a crazed rage, but a consistent opposition to sin and evil. God is fiercely and forcefully opposed to the things that destroy His people. And God is opposed to sin. Look what has to happen. How does He have to have His sin wiped away? Does God just say, oh, you're okay, everything's alright, just move on? What happens? A burning coal, right? Have you ever touched a burning coal? No, I don't want to either, do you? I I told this story a few few months back, but uh, I, I was cooking steak in the oven because my gas grill was broken and was using a cast iron skillet and the recipe I'd found online, which, you know, always trust everything online, had told me to put it in the iron skillet in at 500 degrees, cook the steaks, and I went in, pulled it out, did everything I was supposed to do, took my oven glove off, and then reached back and grabbed the iron skillet. Let me just advise you of something. If you use that recipe, make sure you wear the oven glove at all times. One fun. And Isaiah's not like, oh God, they're bringing a hot, loud, cold to touch my tongue. That's amazing. Thank you for making me feel good, God. It's not what's there, is it? Purging us of our sin is a painful thing. Now, let me say this. Isaiah's on the other side of the cross. And for us, one of the things that we can give glory and praise and honor unto our God for is that He took that punishment on the cross for us. Amen? He took that punishment on the cross for you and for me. And without that, we would have no hope in this world. None. So He took pain and suffering. But sometimes coming to an understanding of how bad we really are will be a painful experience, but it's completely necessary. And what happens 
whenever the Lord cleanses us and we realize we've been made clean, is that that fire that touched his tongue became a fire in his heart to serve his God. Look what happens. It says, I heard the voice saying, Who should I send and who will go? And what does Isaiah say? Send me. I'm here, God. The fire has kind of quenched in his, his, his sin and has given birth to a fire in his heart to do the work of God. The truth is, many of us in this room have allowed the fire of conversion or the fire of revival or the fire of God working in our lives to slowly fade away. A book by a guy named C.S. Lewis, a screw tape letters, letters that has conversations between Satan and demons and others who are working against human beings. There's a, a guy, that he's given the instruction, he says, listen, when somebody becomes a Christian, give him a few days. And as the, convention, as the conversion kind of wears off, he says to do this. This is a quote from the book. Make him comfortable in the present low temperature of his spirit and gradually become content with it. Persuade him that it is not so low after all. In a week or two, you'll be making him doubt whether the days of his first Christianity were not perhaps excessive. Talk to him about moderation in all things. A moderate religion is as good for us as no religion at all. Some of us in this room need to pray for the passion of our souls to be rekindled. Here's the last thing. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. I just want you to see it. Not only is God greater than we expected, not only are we worse than we expected, but number three, the task is harder than we expected. Look what happens here. God says, who's going to go? And what does Isaiah say? I'll go. Notice Isaiah volunteers before he hears the task. Not many of us would have volunteered after we heard the task. I want you to go and you're going to speak to people and all it's going to do, Isaiah, is confirm them in their distance from me. It's going to make their hearts harder, their souls less open to me, their ears are going to close even more, they are going to become farther away from me than ever. And Isaiah, well, how long, Lord? I mean, give me, give me a time frame. Let me know how long I'm going to have to do this and what does God say? Until it's time for complete destruction. Here's the thing. Whatever we expect God to call us to do, living it out is going to be harder than we expect. Listen, if living for the Lord was easy, there would be a whole lot more people doing it more passionately. But it's not. That doesn't mean it's not great, or it doesn't mean that it's not right. It just means that on this earth, stained by the sinfulness of 7 billion people, it is difficult to live in light of God's Word. And you're talking to people that are not ready to listen to what God wants to say. But the question is not, are you being successful in the task? The question is, are you being faithful to what God's called you to do? Here's what I want you to think about today. Because I don't know what you came in here expecting. I don't know what you thought might go on. I don't know if you just thought, I'll just be glad when this hour is done so we can get home and get ready for this little football game on this afternoon, get some stuff ready for that. I don't know what you expected. What if February 5th, 
2012 is supposed to be a monumental day in your spiritual journey? What if February 5th, 2012 is to be the day of your new birth? Maybe you're someone that's never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And today is the day for that to happen. What if today is the first day you've ever realized the greatness of the God that we serve and how bad your life is and without Him you have no hope? Maybe you're here today and in your life situation you feel like one of those guys that you're at the bottom of the pit you don't know how to get out and you know now that it only comes through Jesus. Maybe February 5th, 2012 is that day for you. Maybe you're here and you're a follower of Jesus but you've just kind of gradually walked away from being passionately devoted to Him. And this morning, February 5th, 2012, is a monumental day for you. That's not what you expected, but that's what happened. You realize those dates that I read off, September the 11th and December 7th, April 4th, all those dates? Nobody woke up those days thinking today's going to change the world. Nobody that was affected by them thought that. Perhaps today you walked in like any other Sunday, any other service, any other time. And for whatever reason, today is the day getting a new glimpse of who God is and what He's done. That today is a vitally important day in your spiritual journey. Can I ask you today to be faithful to whatever God's called you to do in this place?